It's a deeply anti-social principle because rights are not just individual, they're collective. And what may not have value to you today may have value to an entire, you know, population, an entire people, uh, or an entire way of life tomorrow. And if you don't stand up for it, then who will? And if you don't stand up for it, then who will? Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Here at the TalkHouse, we pair notable musicians for thoughtful, unmoderated conversations and release new talks each week. Regular listeners will have caught recent episodes like The Smiths' Andy Rourke and Dolores O'Riordan of The Cranberries discussing their new band, Dark, or Neon Indian with chairlifts Caroline Polachek chatting over a live bed of their own ambient music. Check out these and all of our past episodes and subscribe to get new ones on Stitcher or iTunes. Today's guests are synthesizer music legends Jean-Michel Jarre and Vince Clark of Depeche Mode, Yaz, and Erasure, with an introduction by Gavin Russom of LCD Sound System. At the dawn of the 80s, Clark made his name penning Depeche Mode's earliest singles, like Just Can't Get Enough, Dreaming of Me, and New Life. He left the band soon after, and with singer Alison Moyer formed Yaz, also known as Yazoo. They sent a number of songs up the charts, including club bangers Situation, Don't Go, and Only You. When Yaz split, Clark formed Erasure with vocalist Andy Bell. Massive hits like Sometimes, Chains of Love, A Little Respect, Chorus, and so many more cemented the group's synth-pop legacy. All told, Vince Clark is the writer behind records that have sold tens of millions of copies across four decades. He recently launched his own label, Very Records, and this month, Erasure releases the deluxe box set from Moscow to Mars, an Erasure anthology. Jean-Michel Jarre is a pioneer of melodic synthesizer music who has sold over 80 million records and performed to crowds of over 1 million on not one, but four separate occasions. His biggest concert ever, which landed him for the third time in the Guinness Book of World Records, saw 3.5 million in attendance at a 1997 performance in Moscow. Jarre's breakout LP, 1976's Oxygen, which features six synthesizer pieces, helped bring electronic music to the masses. It's the highest selling French record ever. He recently teamed up with what he calls his heroes for the two volume series Electronica, collaborating with some of his favorite artists, including Vince Clark, Pete Townsend, and Laurie Anderson on last year's volume one, and Pet Shop Boys, Hans Zimmer, Julia Holter, and even Edward Snowden for this year's volume two. In addition, this month on the 40th anniversary of Oxygen, Jarre released Oxygen 3. Clark and Jarre are huge fans of each other's work. They came by my studio and over cups of tea jumped directly into deep synthesizer talk. Jar said of himself and Clark that We're like two geeks. I mean, talking about very specialized things yeah. for, for the listeners. And halfway through their chat asked Is it okay or is it too, too, too specialized? I mean, I assured him that no, it wasn't. It was fascinating stuff. Still, the talk does get technical at times, so I thought we could use a translator. Someone who could take a few minutes to give examples of a handful of the synths that the guys discussed. I reached out to an artist that designs, builds, fixes, and plays them, and who is one of today's wizards of analog synths. Hey, I'm uh, Gavin Russom. I'm an electronic musician and composer, and have done several projects. Black Meteoric Star, Deli and Gavin, The Crystal Arc, and I am the synth player in LCD Sound System. This conversation between Jean-Michel Jarre and Vince Clark is really incredible, and it just brings up so many cool points, and I of course, also got into it because they just mentioned tons and tons of cool gear. 
but for those who, who may not uh, be able to catch all those references, uh, here's a little bit about why I, think, uh, why I think this stuff is so cool. I'm mostly going to be talking about analog synthesizers, although they do mention a bunch of digital tools as well, uh, because that's my area of expertise. A basic difference between analog and digital, obviously analog didn't exist as a term until digital came into existence because it was just the only thing. Analog basically means that you're actually hearing the sound of electricity. Electricity, when it becomes sound, is alternating current, which means uh, the signal goes back and forth, which is what's described as oscillation, and the oscillator is the part of a synth that does that. So as the electricity is moving up and down, it goes through a wire into a speaker, and that speaker moves back and forth. That moves air, and then that moves into your ear and moves a little thing that's not that different from a speaker back and forth, and you hear the sound. Digital technology basically creates tiny pictures of sound called samples and takes tiny little pictures of the wave at little uh, microsecond intervals and then reproduces those through a digital to analog converter that then turns them into electricity moving back and forth and moves the speaker and then moves your ear. One thing that's really cool about this talk is that um, both guys make it clear that we're no longer living in a technological world where you need to choose between analog and digital music tools that you can kind of use both you know, in interaction with each other, maximizing on the strength of whatever technology you, you choose for a particular task. You'll hear them talking about digital music technology in the context of Skrillex and Dubstep and the plugin called Massive. So one thing that Jean-Michel kind of casually drops is a reference to the AKS when they're talking about the Buclo music easel. And he's talking about the EMS Synthie AKS. And what particularly I think he's, he's mentioning is that it was... It was a synth that you could carry around in a small suitcase, and the Buchla Music Easel is, is the same. It comes in a little suitcase. One great example of the use of the, of the EMS Synthi uh, actually comes from, from LCD Sound System. The EMS Synthi is, uh, is a tool James uses a lot uh, in production, and uh, on someone great, when you hear that sort of background, uh, it's really an excellent use of the, of the Synthi. Also, uh, the Cynthia AKS was Brian Eno's go-to instrument, and you can hear it on a lot of Roxy Music tracks. The Buchla Music Easel itself is a really interesting tool beyond the fact that it's compact and comes in a small suitcase. The most uh, notable thing is that, as Vince talks about, it combines sound waves together to create more complex sounds, whereas other synths relied more on filters. They talk both about the Moog Modular Synthesizer and the Mini Moog. These were one of the big pioneer synthesizers, and Robert Moog really changed the entire world of music technology by introducing the concept of voltage control. The Moog Modular is a big wall of modules uh, with wires and interconnecting them and knobs to change different parameters. And um, you can hear it, uh, the, the number one place, it is on any music really from, from the time that it was popular, but uh, Stevie Wonder is like one of the most um, notable appearances. 
Mini Moog basically was an attempt to take all that functionality and put it in a small package that musicians could play live. Um, and uh, my favorite Mini Moog uh, appearance is the the uh, little synth solo in Magic Man by Heart that comes out of the guitar solo in this very magical way. One thing that comes up as a comparison between new modular analog synthesizer gear and old modular analog synthesizer gear, and uh, Vince talks about Euro modules, and he's referring to Eurorack, which is a standard of uh, putting synthesizer modules in a particular size package so that they can fit into what's called a Eurorack, um, which is a big rack that holds them. And in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a huge burst of new companies designing these. And whereas in older synths, like the Roland System 100 that Vince also mentions, you could only use modules from a particular company, whereas with Eurorack, you can combine many modules from different companies all together and therefore curate kind of your own sound um, just based on the kind of music that you want to make. A good example of the Roland System 100 is Don't You Want Me Baby by The Human League. I can't think about a, an example of the Eurorack because it's used so widely, um, but Radiohead is definitely one of the big and more popular users of this kind of synth. The synth that they refer to as the, the beginning of the end, I believe, is the Yamaha DX7 was so ubiquitous that the, at the time, mostly because the idea was to make something that was powerful, but uh, commercially affordable and could do a wide variety of sounds. It used something called FM, which meant, uh, uh, that stands for frequency modulation, which meant it relied on combining sound waves together uh, rather than filtering them out as the, uh, the older analog machines had, similar to what we talked about with the Buchla. It was really geared on remaking classic sounds, brass, uh, keyboards, organs. Uh, but of course, it did it all through uh, electronic technology, as they talk about, with uh, mixed results. I think they call it the beginning of the end because it was just impossible to access the huge amount of power that was built into the synthesizer. It had a few knobs on the front and one little slider. So it was much easier to just choose the sounds that it came with rather than to build your own as had been possible with the big analog machines. Uh, Jean-Michel mentions the, the synth that came before that uh, and says the 9. I, I, think, I think he may mean the, the 1, actually, um, the, the Yamaha DX1, uh, which was a beautiful machine of which very, very few were made because it actually had all of the front panel controls to access all of the different parameters of the sound that you could use. So instead of as the DX7, which was incredibly powerful, but basically you couldn't get into that power, you could really manipulate sound in a really detailed way with the DX1. It was incredibly expensive and incredibly heavy, so it didn't catch on. Whereas the DX7, which was affordable, uh, became extremely popular. A few, uh, a few examples of it, uh, Shout by Tears for Fears. Luther Vandross here and now are uh, are places where you hear it very prominently. Here and now. 
hope this little bit of uh, synth translation has helped to open up the, this great conversation. And if you get overwhelmed by the uh, storm of tech terms that, that come up, feel free to come back and, and listen again to get a little bit more detail. Enjoy this wonderful conversation. I've always been a, a great fan of, uh, of uh, Vince because um, uh, I found he's responsible. He should not be in the same room anyway at that stage, but I'm, I'm going to, to say what I, what I, what I felt from me. He's been a, always a great source of inspiration to me because, uh, you know, it's, for me, he's, he's really symbolizing the, this kind of, um, uh, I mean, British... Pop and, and rock meeting electronic music, and uh, and and he's the one who defined the the, the sound of uh, British electronic pop, and with this kind of club feel on one side, and and with a darker with a darker uh, side in terms of uh, melodies and such a, and we are sharing I think the the idea that um, um, melody is the most important thing to. In, in music, probably. Yes, yeah, so I think so. Yeah, I think um, when I when I heard, you know, you when I was very young, um, I think the thing that struck me the most was the fact w that you played such um, an emphasis on melody. You know, I mean, there were, I mean, there were a few electronic kind of kind of concept bands that were making electronic music and using electronic instruments. But I think that you um, really um, championed the value of melody and things that people could actually remember, as opposed to just getting into the technicalities of, you know, this is a really clever sound. So, and 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 also, uh, I think we are both geeks, um, and uh, also <laughs> we have uh, we're quite. Um, uh, we have this kind of uh, naughty, silly relationship with. Uh, with toys, and uh, and and especially analog analog uh, synthesizers, we are sharing this kind of uh, almost central organic approach to to synthesizers, don't, don't we? No, I, I think so. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, to be honest, you know, when I when I started making music, I didn't really appreciate the difference between analog and digital, and um, it's only in, in more recent years that I've began to um, hear, even hear the difference, really. You know, it's, um, and also I think with using analog equipment, it's, it's not just about the sound of it, it's actually um, the fact that you have to do something physically to make the sound. So you're not just pointing, getting a mouse and pointing at a, something on the, on the screen. You're physically changing knobs, you're, you're changing faders, you're connecting things that, and, I don't even really now know what I'm doing, which I love because it's a, it, it's. I think to myself, well, I'd really like a trumpet sound, and I try and get that trumpet sound, and it turns out to be something completely different. And I think um, hopefully that's what makes our music, you know, more interesting and unique. Yeah, I mean the the the, the notion of accident you are talking yes. about. I mean that with analog instruments, you are you are always. Uh, Victim in a sense, but also exploiting accidents. What we, what I, I really like, and uh, I would agree with you. I mean, uh, lots of people sometimes are asking us. I mean, do you prefer analog or digital? Do you make a difference? I, I think it's um, 
it's not the point because actually I, I agree with you. Even, even I would say that even now, uh, I think that uh, uh, if you want an analog sound, you go to analog instrument. But if you, if you go for 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 uh, for pure digital sound, it's you're not going to use a minimog. You're not going mm. to use something else. And and I found I don't know what you think, but I I'm, I found that probably quite recently, the last four or five years. Uh, <coughs> the um, uh, Atlas digital plugins are now becoming adults. They are stopping just imitating or emulating existing analog instruments. And frankly, if we are lucky like we are to have uh, the original Minimoog or ARP 2600, why using the em emulated version or the digital version, except when you're traveling because it's lighter, sure. but uh, but it's not even the same sound. But which is great with now with uh, with quite lots of digital plugin is actually you can do with these instruments things that you can't achieve yes. with an analog instrument so it's like two different type of uh, of uh, of instruments like if you take the, the native plugins like such like contour or or um, massive for instance and it's uh, it's interesting how instruments are generating styles. I mean, for instance, without Massive, Dubstep probably won't exist. Sure. Skrillex won't exist in the same way, for instance. Yeah. I mean, I think also there's a third thing, that, and that's the whole the whole Euromodular thing that's happening now. Because, you know, both you and I have um, many modular sy systems, and they're kind of basically the same. They work the same. You know, you connect the VCO to the VCF, the VCF to the VCA. But now there's all these interesting young companies starting up that make modular systems where the the, the modulations that you can do, that you can do were unheard of back in the day, you know. So it's it's kind of almost a third wave of um, a kind of interesting um, sound creation that wasn't available. You know, when when the Moog system, the Moog modular came out, or when the Roller modular came out, and every single week, and there's a new company starting with a new idea, and you've got that analog sound, but the modulation possibilities are there are more and more of those. I think, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's really great that you are raising this point because I was just. I just really wanted to talk to you about this. So I'm really <laughs> glad that you just pointed at that because, I mean, at the same time as the digital, uh, the digital plugins are, are growing. I mean, all the new generation now are discovering uh, uh, analog uh, modules, and uh, and as you say, it's it's a totally different approach than the original and the, the first. Uh, modular synthesizers such as the Moog 55 or the R2500 or even the 2600 because actually the possibility of modulations are, are much richer and actually also the fact that you can also m uh, blend and mix different modules from different companies yes. in a kind of random way. I mean it's very interesting this kind of uh, Brazil approach of uh, analog uh, uh, modular synthesizer, Brazil the movie, not the country, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and actually, I've never been. Uh, it's a question I wanted to discuss with you because uh, uh, I've never been uh, that close of Bukla as a, as. A, and I know mm. that you 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 worked a bit. Or, yeah, a little you... bit. Yeah, because Bukla was one of the very early systems. Yeah, 
And then it disappeared more or less when we were involved, and and and, it, and, and then they came back again. Yeah. And uh, I'm very interested by uh, working with uh, uh, Bukla and and with this uh, music easel, the like yes. uh, the the it looks like an AKS, uh, but it's uh, actually ten or twenty times more sophisticated because it's actually with this instrument you can do what even uh, uh, a Moog 55 can't oh, can't yeah. do. It's it's a yeah. very sophisticated machine. And I'm very into all this kind of, uh, of, uh, and also circuits band type of, of, of thing because you can't really, you can really uh, create different sounds. And you, after a while, you really don't know where you are, which is, which I, 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 we like. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, because the Buchler system works on a different principle in so much as there's not so much filters and direct envelopes, but there's quite cross modulation. Yeah. And this was, this was quite unique. Back in the well, it, it still is, but there are actually Euro modules now that kind of emulate the way that that works. And uh, interestingly enough, a friend of mine um, who works in advertising does music for for commercials. That's all he uses. Just before. really, that's that's all. So you know, you get these people from CBS coming to a studio and saying, "Well, we need a a little sports thing that goes ba ba da ba da ba ba," you know, in this section. And rather than go to the computer find the trumpet sound, he does it the, the entire thing on Buchler. Why? I know, man, it's like crazy. Wow. <laughs> and it sounds, and it sounds very, it sounds unique. Yeah, sure. You know, it really does. I mean, the people from the advertising company have no idea what he's doing. Yeah, sure. And yes. they wouldn't care if he just went to the toilet and made the sound, but you know, he just does stuff on the Buchler and... Because and, to control the beast is quite challenging. Yeah, and he's been doing it, I mean, um, you know, he's been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. So he, in fact, the college that he chose to go to to graduate was the only college he found in the States who had a Buchler system. Yeah, that was the reason that he went to the particular <laughs> college. <laughs> I'll play you some stuff. I'll send you some stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really, really interesting. And are you using a bit of these new uh, modules or, or on Well, the Eurorec really? stuff, I mean, I'm really getting into now, you know. The Duckfur and things like this. Well, Duckfur and also, but, uh, there are so many of these yeah, little so tiny companies. Yes, yeah, that's right. You yes. know, and it's very, very cool. And like you say, I think that the beauty of it is the fact that you can mix and match these different manufacturers who have a different... Um, way of making sound, you can say, okay, you know what, I really like the envelope of this particular manufacturer because it's so fast yeah. and it's so hard-hitting. But this filter of this company is just incredible. And it's, and it's lovely because, you know, they're expensive, but they're, they're not that expensive. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I don't know, I mean, I paid, you know, a lot of money for my Moog system and I paid a lot of money for my Roland system. Yeah. But now people can build a system from a very small, you know, from, from a very small start, and then they, they, they can build it and build it and have an amazing system. And um, it, it, I mean, it, it's like the soft synths in so much as it makes music or the ability to make those sounds much more accessible to so many more people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's democracy, really. I think yeah, it's 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 right because it's uh, this resurgence of modular is like uh, you could compare to the res resurgence of vinyl in a sense. Yes, you know, I mean it's like uh, going back. I mean it's uh, uh, it's going back to a kind of uh, vintage approach, but in the twenty first century, which is absolutely different. Yeah, uh, the, the relationship with the the object, the the, the fact that uh, it's it's interesting that all young DJs actually are now discovering. Uh, electronic music through modules yes. rather than plugins, which is quite 
quite interesting yeah. because again, uh, what you can do with modules and also circuit. I love also this circuit band. I mean, the, I mean, talking. The, I mean, you know, this this kind of um, um, cheap Casio where you where you just have I mean small cables and and then you can do really some uh, some strange sound and and also um, I mean uh, companies such as Teenage Engineering yeah. with their small OP1, the small, I mean, the, there is a real trend and, and tendency today, I mean, to, to try to find cheap modules, as you said, which which actually democratize the, the modular concept. Yeah, and also I think it's, um, and the, 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 you know, the, I think that what attracts people and us to that to that whole world is, is the fact that of the, of the, is, is the unpredictability. Yeah. Because you get a modular system and there's no memory. In the same way that back in 1980 there was no memory on a Absolutely. system 100, yeah, you know. So everything, in theory, every time that you make a sound, the sound will be different. Exactly. Unless you're going to take a photograph of the which we used to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Polaroids or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, people. I mean, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, in days, in times that everything is so uh, controlled, and every, <coughs> in in our society, I mean. I mean, everything is so politically correct and everything has to be... Uh, I mean, we, we are surrounded by control freaks in our society. I mean, it's, a, it's like, a, like if in music we, we were going back or, or reacting by the uh, unpredictability of, of what you do. And, and it's, uh, there is a trap of having memories and presets because yes. for one moment, I think we all became kind of archivists by just, uh, just uh, I mean, just, I mean, going even even if we were intellectually against this idea, we were trapped by the desire of, uh, I mean, just checking the presets. And when you have one thousand presets, it takes uh, half a day to go to go through them. And when you go to the nine nine hundred and ninety nine, you forgot the ten first. So yes. it's, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And and when you you have to to start from scratch, you will always, I mean. Express who you are as a, as a musician. So it's a, it's a it's a great great uh, uh, it's a great great way. Also the the the, the, the feeling that what you do is um, is not going to last. What you do is uh, in one hour is going to be different. Yes, and you have to 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 take it and to to uh, to record it really. Yeah, to to grab it. It's like yes. a hunt. Yeah, I mean I used to work when I remember when I started working with. Um, my partner Andy mm -hmm. in, in the early days in the studio, we had a producer called Flood, and um, you know, I would be mucking about, messing about on my systems and that, looking for a sound that I liked, you know. And then he would go stop, but it was too late already. I had changed the sound, so I changed the slider or moved the knob, and yeah. it was gone. Yeah, but I, I love that, you know. I love that. Um, fact that you go in the studio, you you write your song, you produce your song, you record your song, but your intention at the beginning of the days doesn't end up anywhere near sounding like the, f the finished product, you know. And um, I think that that's, it's, 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 it makes it interesting as well, you know. It's, I don't want to start making standard records or standard sounds or, you know, or making sounds that I've heard already on someone else's record, which is the way that presets go. Especially, I mean, I remember when the DX7 came out, you know, everybody seemed to be, that was, to me, was the beginning of the end. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I love this. I love this so much. This comment. But it's true. It's like um, you know, everybody went through the same for the same bass sound because it sounded good. Yeah. It just, and it sounded different at the time. But then everybody did it. Yeah. And for me, my re-interest in in, in analog synthesizers began at that point, and I realised that you know I don't want to, I don't want to do that anymore. I mean, we could even compare the DX7 to the um, to the CD. Yeah. It's the same kind of. It's the dark age of digital. Yes. And, and suddenly when, when electronic music was approached with a Japanese brain uh, by saying, okay, we are going to, uh, to go back in a sense to the, this old silly idea or silly concept of trying to say, okay, an electronic synthesizer is made to imitate acoustic instruments. Yes. So look at this great sound of a trumpet or this great sound of an organ or whatever and, and a clarinet. And obviously it has nothing to do, it had nothing to do with a trumpet or a real clarinet. Uh, but it, it created this kind of idea that actually a synthesizer is a fake instrument. It's not a real instrument yeah. because it's just imitate, imitate real instruments. Yes. And I think the DX7 actually harmed uh, and affected a lot uh, in the in the people's mind what electronic and electronic instruments yeah. did even if Brian Eno did great things with the DX7 because he's an instrument I, I loved actually the DX9 oh, yeah. the one before <laughs> because it was just uh, not entirely closed yes. it's not, it was not entirely finished so as we know we, we, we like I mean just uh, I mean I, I always like um, uh, commercial Disasters in in in, in uh, uh, synthesizer, you know. I mean, because in in, in in all synthesizer were not. I mean, each synthesizer not being a commercial success by definition is interesting, right? Yeah. Because you have some mistakes in it and and things you can exploit. Yes. And, uh, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, the DX7. I mean, killed also killed uh, Robert Moog and the ARP and all these great great. Um, I mean, great artists yeah. and, and, and people working in the, in the room like we are now. I mean, small room and just doing that by hand. And suddenly that killed this kind of uh, uh, Romanesque almost approach yeah. of uh, electronic. But also I think um, it was because it was so difficult to program or so complicated. It seemed very, it wasn't a hands-on instrument. It wasn't like something like you go for a switch or a, go for a button and things would start changing. You had to really think about it. So then you tended, well, I did, to go for, like, the presets, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, to, to be able to program a DX7, you, you need to, to, to be an engineer. When I started, you have you have very little people, very few people being involved really in, in visuals. I mean, we, when I started, probably we had Pink Floyd and myself, and really involved in uh, in stage design and being obsessed by that. And then, as we know, 
everybody is doing it and now we are so when I'm seeing some EDM festival it reminds me of, of what I was doing 25 years ago more yeah. or less and now obviously with technology it's, it's quite like synthesizers we were talking about that and, and actually it's it's very exciting because with technology these days you can you can do lots of interesting things it's the same thing but after what as we know it's the same for we instruments we, we are like two geeks I mean talking about very specialized things yeah. for for the listeners but actually it's uh, it's um, by the end of the day is how how you use the, yeah, the technology the that makes you end. that yeah, it's, it's what, what you do with it you know Absolutely, everybody yeah. is, is, go, is is using i don't know led screens or lasers or lights and it, it's all depending on what you do like 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 uh, like like synthesizers it's the same thing so do you like synchronize your yeah is everything would you yes. work to simty or something or yes uh, uh, i'm really working with um, simty I mean, the system I <coughs> I have is um, is actually I'm using a semi code with uh, just basic sequences that coming from us uh, this time with uh, live Ableton on which we are playing live. Yes, uh, and and uh, and then uh, because I, I I love the idea that uh, actually in days where I mean being like between the rock band approach and the DJ. I mean, try, trying to take both both of uh, uh, best world. I mean, really. Yes. So having the empty code. I mean, to to synchronize what. I mean, also playing the same three notes for five minutes is not that uh, great. Uh, but then it's it's allow you to have a platform on which you can feel free and also also having also some paths without any time code at all, which is also nice. Right. That uh, and then the uh, suddenly the the lighting people and all that they have to to play with us i i love also this kind of we were talking before about accidents i think it's nice also on on stage to play with this and having and having kind of uh, alternate situation where you can have tracks really with time code and tracks without without it and i did uh, uh, one uh, tour I've, I've done, I mean, that was, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, I played uh, just Oxygen without MIDI and without anything, like a, a jazz quartet. Oh, yeah. Because it has been, because Oxygen was uh, on eight tracks, so with four guys we had eight hands, so we played, <laughs> we were able to play everything. It was a nightmare. It was uh, with, just with analog things, and, uh, no MIDI, no time code, nothing. <laughs> And, and actually, after a while, I mean, you, we had so many problems regularly that actually instead of hiding them, we played with them and, and the audience really loved it. Yes. You know? Yeah, I think people like to see, I mean, on stage, you know, one of the things that we've always, you know, we've always, we've always strove for perfection. But then you find that when you make mistakes, I mean, if Andy falls over on his high heels, people really warm to it because it, they suddenly they see you as somebody that's not actually... You know, perfect. Yeah, exactly. And you know, people aren't laughing at you; they're laughing kind of with you. Exactly. And I, I, partly, if you if you play the game. Yeah, but it's um, I'm not I'm not particularly a jazz fan. But my I used to work with this engineer, and he used to say, and it's a terrible thing, really. He used to say, you know, if you make a mistake when you play keyboards or you play guitar, they just call it jazz. 
<laughs> that's great. That, that, that's very true, actually, in a sense. But you know, uh, we, uh, it's very true what you're saying. People these days, I mean, are so obsessed with perfection. I mean, uh, you 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 do I don't know a TV interview, and people you have a cable with a tiny microphone with a black cable and a black T-shirt, and who cares if you see the the, no. the cable? But they will take ten minutes to hide this bloody cable. I mean, what, what, it, it doesn't mean anything, and we are in. Well, the technology is there, and and and, and we and people love that. They all love the, all love. I mean, actually, if you have too many accidents, it's something <laughs> just a crap band. But, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> yes. so you have to be just to to survive just above that, yeah, above that level. But uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, it's it's interesting because I, I if with this project I, for instance, uh, the track we've done together, automatic. I mean, I, it's it's a, a track I really love, and uh, I'm going to play it live and uh, and actually mixing. I mean, some time code with sequences, but also adding stuff on it, and and maybe we if. If maybe we are in the same town, the same the same night, we can join forces for that because it's also nice actually to to um, to create some uh, some accidents also by adding things and and doing something which uh, more or less I, I more and more I, I consider the, the work on stage as something totally different from the album. I yeah. mean, it's like an, for me. I mean, what I try to do this time is actually to to try to approach. I mean the performance as a kind of um, audiovisual animal object, where where the the visual is a part of the of, of the proposal of the of the performance. Uh, to try to get away from this um, kind of series of video clip, where yes. you have a, you have a kind of narrative in each for each track, but more to try to create kind of depth and and 3D type of effects. I'm not talking about 3D with glasses, but 3D like when you are doing mixing. Yeah, uh, depth. Depth. That's right. And to try to 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 find this depth in, uh, in the, for the visual rather, and also having a modular concept that if you are, we're talking just before this chat about uh, one of the festival I'm going to do this summer at Jodrell Bank. I mean, near, uh, outside Manchester. I mean, it's, a, it's quite strange dome stage, and and then you have to make it fit. And yes. uh, so we we are trying to to get this kind of modular concept where wherever you are, it's it's going to it has to be different rather than having preconceived state. Where, wherever you are, it's going to be the same bloody yes. show. Yeah. I mean, from A to Z, and yeah. I'm I'm trying to escape from that. But it's as we know, it's difficult because it's more work. It's more it requires more sound check or more things. But you know, yeah. And the we tour manager just, manages, production manager just moans about it, complains. That's right, complain. everybody <laughs> complains. About, you have a grumpy guy, grumpy atmosphere yeah. everywhere. But it's, uh, I mean, and also, also as you as you know, probably it's always very difficult. You have to create tensions because it's almost mathematics. So if you if you have a good show one day, I mean, we, we, we you, you can be sure that the following night is going to be not a disaster, but something with lots of tiny problems so uh, I, I I try to create uh, when uh, I felt that it was quite all right I always try to find something really bad to, to, <laughs> to create a tension and to create to create a kind of frustration that everybody will say wow let's be careful yeah I remember we did um Andy and I from yeah. we did like I think we're doing 12 nights in a in a very small venue in New York and the stage set was basically like a jungle 
with trees and plants, but they were all inflatables? Right, yes. <laughs> okay, so all of the inflatables were being, there's a pump at the back yes, of the pump, stage. A continuous pump? Continuous pump that keeps these things erect. Yeah. And then halfway through one really emotional, slow song, the pump fails, and all these plants just slowly deflate. And, pe could, and people, people remember that. They will always remember that one particular shout of all the 14 nights. The one that they remember is when the trees, the jungle collapsed behind us. And we're going on this. <laughs> but, but, but it could have been great as an effect. It was, well, it wasn't an effect. It was. It was quite poetic. I mean, suddenly having all this, if it was a slow, slow. Well, it was a bit kind of prophetic and sad, really. It was almost getting like, you know, I don't yes, know. Yes, kind of Monty Python type yes, of in a Monty, situation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In a sad kind of sexual way, you know. It was, it was all pretty. <laughs> yes, a real down. <laughs> yeah. A real downer. But uh, what, what's. what's uh, because you, you, you've been involved in so many different projects in, in your life, Vince, I mean, so far. I mean, what, what for, do you have any kind of, uh, because obviously in, in terms of all, all your different acts or your different projects, they have specific sounds. Are you, uh, are you also thinking about with your partners and, and, and the band, I mean, thinking about specific visual to it or specific? Uh, well, I mean, it's always been, I mean, one of the the very first early shows that I did with Andy, you know, he decided, and I, it wasn't a discussion. He just decided he would wear like start wearing a red tights or something. It mm -hmm. was something, you know, and it, it, we it, it just felt really good and it felt really right. He felt really comfortable doing it, and immediately people took to it. People really warmed to it. You know, we played. Um, Lots of clubs and universities, and in the early days, and gay clubs, mm -hmm. and um, I don't know. I mean, because we knew that we were there were just the two of us. We had two backing singers. There were just the two of us. There was no drama. There was no guitarist doing the big, you know, guitar solo or anything. So he felt that we needed to be bigger visually. Mm. So. Rather as, than, as characters. As, as characters, but as, as rather than rely, which we couldn't afford, lights or set, you know, he took on that role and basically, you know, ran about the stage like a lunatic, wearing pretty outrageous clothes yeah, absolutely, and stuff, yes, you yeah. know. Absolutely. But we always felt that. We always thought that we needed to be bigger than life because we weren't doing the whole rock you know, solo thing or anything, and um, there wasn't a drummer in the ba in the back, you know. So, how did you uh, uh, manage to get? So, you work with some sequences, or well, back in the day, we were working um, the early shows. There was a, a, a sequence called Yumi. Yeah, yeah, I remember the, that. You used to work yeah. with the BBC computer, so we used that, and then I would play on top of that. Yeah, and um, then we did a show. Then I went off of MIDI for a while. So then we decided we'd go back to MC4. Yes. So I had two MC4s triggering synthesizers. It was working quite well, that. It worked really well. I mean, it was um, it was a bit scary. Yeah. Because sure. obviously when the power goes off of one of those things, that's it. That's it. That's the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that did happen to us a few times. Yeah. But, um, but what was cool about it was, um, when that did happen, actually, was Andy just ploughed on. Yeah. You know, he was a real trooper. He would just... Um, I remember he went through a whole medley of Beatles songs on show because none of the technology was working. All a cappella. Wow. You know, just just did it. 
Because he, he you know, I, I, if, it were, if it were me in charge, I would have said, let's get off the stage and reset it and look cool and it will be fine, you know. But no, he just carried on until everything was fixed. And people love that. Because yeah. we made a mistake. There was, hu- there was a, It was a huge mess up. And uh, we ploughed through and people just related to that, you know. That's really nice. It's that human... Yeah, this human You touch. were saying about the, the difference between live and making a record... For us, that was always that interaction, that f- f- fallibility, you know, that, yeah. you know, you're kind of naked, really. Things can go wrong, and they do go wrong. And when they do go wrong, people still like it. In fact, they like it more, I think, you know. And, and uh, uh, how, how are you... Rem- I, I always wanted to, to ask you this. I mean, how do you uh, remember the early uh, Depeche Mode uh, Days because for me when when I I, I discovered the Mode, I mean your sound was so strong, and then when you when you left the Mode, I mean the, the the band went into a total different direction. I, I'm, I'm talking about the sound. I'm not talking about uh, the songs or whatever, but the sound. And uh, when you're looking back at that, what, what, what's your feeling about it? Because you had the kind of very uh, very specific sound that you carried with you and, and then it, it the Depeche Mode went some, somewhere else in a sense I, I think it's um, well I mean really it's down to the fact that you know the first recordings that we did were uh, on 8-track and um, we were playing that first album live and there were three synth players and one singer so that's pretty much is what ended up on the record mm. and then you get into 24 track recording studios and um, it all changes yeah I think it's Once more, the, the 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 technique, which defined, I mean, the the style as as always, because you know, it's. A, I always thought that uh, I mean, technology is dictating styles and not the reverse. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's because uh, because um, we. I mean, somebody invented the violin that Vivaldi did what he what he did, or or, or because of the seventy eight. Uh, where you could cut only three minutes, that uh, the single as a format on radio and jukeboxes existed as a format of three minutes. And, and Elvis' songs were three minutes because you couldn't cut more than three <laughs> yeah. minutes. You know, <laughs> it was not possible. And, and, and the same, like people like us, I mean, because of uh, uh, LPs, I mean, you could, you could have songs not being trapped into a kind of three yeah. minutes pop format. And so on and so forth. And I was mentioning about Massive, for instance. I was really uh, intrigued. And, and, and uh, I mean, Massive, I mean, just this plugin, I mean, just dictated, I mean, just created the dubstep as a style, for instance. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very interesting what you said about the A track because, I mean, ice, oxygen, if it sounds like this, it's because it was done on A tracks, like homework from Daft Punk. They, they had just a minimal. Uh, a minimal equipment and it was just with eight tracks and, and, and this is the reason why it sounds I mean we, we know that less is more we all know that but it's hard, to, it's go back, hard to go back to that yes, it's really it's hard it's very frustrating it's I think the most frustrating thing and, and I, I, I promised myself to do one project where uh, I'm, I'm going to try to find a way to not Technic- technically allowing myself to go over eight tracks and yeah. finding just few instruments and, and that's it. 
Yeah. I never did it yet. Each time I, I start in, uh, after after a week of few days, I say, oh, okay, yeah. let's, let's go to nine and, and, and ten and twelve <laughs> and so next time. And, and you know we, I you know when I with electronica and also adding, I mean working with pro, with uh, so many different collaborators. I mean, people wanting also to. When you you gave me some tracks, I mean, you had quite lots of tracks yes. yourself, plus mine. Though it was quite, but it was we were quite serious about it together. But for, for instance, with Air, I mean, we ended with I don't know 100 tracks. It was <laughs> ridiculous. And I mean, to make it. And then after they told me, "Oh, my your album, you have the final cut." It was, they, they said that like a present, but it was a nightmare, actually, it was, to deal with this. And, uh, but, uh, and we know that less is more, and to make it sound coherent with lots of tracks is, is really difficult. Yeah. And I think we have the same, what I really like in, in, the, in the way you're approaching composition is the, the, you are working very vertical. I mean, you're, 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 you have a very specific... And I, working with you was a real pleasure, I mean, discovering your track, because it's very, very, very organized. I mean, yeah. Very, <laughs> and every sound is very, I mean, it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's almost a kind of, uh, I would say, kind of Jackson Pollock approach to sound, where every, it's like pointiest, you know, approach to, to, to analog synth, what I really like. Where I'm more into uh, layers and, and pads and all that, I, this is a big trap to get the dynamic after I think I think, I mean, I've found that, I don't know about your experience, but I've found that if I'm using analog equipment, I don't necessarily have to layer so much as I do if I use soft synthesizers. Because, really? Yeah, because, you know, I, 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 we, I did a Yazoo tour, like a, and some of the original uh, multi-tracks were damaged, so I had to recreate the sounds. And I found that, like, and I did it quite quickly, but I found that, like, if I had a Pro 1 sound, say, for instance, doing a particular melody, to get that same sound on soft synthesizers, I had to maybe layer it three or four times, mm. just to get that, that richness. And, and it never sounded, it, obviously, it never sounded the same. But... Um, Layering is again because of the technology. That's such an easy path to go down. Yeah, and and you know, we it's. I think that it's a trap because uh, by the end of the day, I mean, music is mono. It's all about mono. Yeah. I mean, a violin is mono. When I talk to you, it's mono. I mean, a flute is mono. I mean, and then we have this kind of silly stereo outputs on synthesizers. I mean, adding adding kind of fake chorus and fake. And you say, hey, you're trapped. You, you know it's wrong, but you do it because you love the sound. And then <laughs> yeah. it's impossible to mix. And you, it's, it's so crazy. And, uh, and you know, I've been uh, working with Jeff Mills yeah. uh, for, for, uh, for this uh, second volume of Electronica. And uh, he has also, uh, he's, 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 it's very interesting because he's working, everything is live. And, uh, and uh, he, he's actually mixing everything. And, and the result of it is four tracks. Not, much, but it's 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 not even separate tracks. It's yeah. Everything like so, it's quite an, a nightmare. But in in a sense, when it works, it makes your life quite uh, quite easy as yes. well. And uh, and everything is uh, absolutely. Uh, he's playing everything. Even drum machine is uh, like a jazz jazz uh, drummer. He's playing the TR. I don't know if you if you if you saw him playing live, but it's really great. I mean, he's just uh, released a, a DVD called Ex Exhibitionist Two. Right. It's great. 
quite impressive to see him. I mean, playing the TR-909 like a drummer. Everything is live and he doesn't record anything. He doesn't think he's playing live on it. It's wow. quite, quite impressive. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, I mean, this project has been for me a, a real dream because I've been in, in touch with people working in so many different, different ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, that, that has been really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a real pleasure. I have to say, I've I, I've totally enjoyed doing the project. I mean, it's been fantastic, and um, I've um, it's been great to meet you. And um, I look forward to you cooking me a meal in Paris one day. I mean, it's it's been also a, a, a real uh, honor and privilege to be welcome the first time I met you in at your home, and. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, if you would be even interested working with me in this project. And uh, I must say that uh, we clicked entirely, not, not, not only because of we are probably interested in the same gear on eBay, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, furthermore, I mean, because we, we suddenly uh, felt, I mean, through what we've done, uh, we became kind of instant friends and creating instant friendship. So, I mean, you're more than welcome next time in Paris to, uh, to share uh, some... Uh, special cooking from my hometown. I mean, I, I, I'm born in Lyon. Yes. And we, because we are very uh, chauvinist in Lyon, we think that it's the best place in the world for cooking. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good cooking, but I know good restaurants. Fantastic. Thank you. I look forward to it. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. I'm Ellie Einhorn, and you've been listening to Jean-Michel Jarre and Vince Clark with Gavin Russom of LCD Sound System on the TalkHouse Music Podcast. During this chat, Clark mentioned a friend who exclusively uses the Buchla. Well, this friend, Reed Hayes of Reed and Caroline, just gave Vince, along with Dev Hines of Blood Orange and half of the band Savages, a lesson in that fantastic synth that you can watch at thetalkhouse.com now. Subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes for upcoming episodes like the Arcade Fire's Will Butler with Wyclef Jean discussing the Fuji's album The Score on its 20th anniversary, and Dan Deacon in conversation with Andrew W.K. Till next time. They mention a fucking crazy amount of gear. Yeah. <laughs>